Welcome to the latest edition of the Fight for Sight uh, podcast. I have had some incredible conversations in the, um, the the making of these recordings over over the last few months. This time, I am particularly proud, and it's an immense personal pleasure to have with me David Clark. For those people that don't know, David Clark was the captain of the blind football team in the 2012 Olympics. 25 years in banking the Chief Operating Officer at the Royal National Institute of Blind People, and I'm very proud to say one of my great friends. David, it's good to see you. That's lovely. Yeah, oh, I'm going to come here again. That's uh, that's not a bad little intro. Yeah, brilliant to see you. And uh, yeah, um, I miss you. I miss you too. So David and I worked together for some four years, and um, there was a point in time where we were both starting a job at the same time, I think, both thinking we were going to be the blind guy on a new team, and then both had to meet each other with two very different, I think, experiences of sight loss, but a common understanding of what it means to get on with life if you're visually impaired. I've got retinitis pigmentosa, which means a degenerative condition diagnosed at 11 that's taken my sight from me over a considerable period of time. David, your experience, very different to that. Yeah, I have congenital glaucoma. So um, I was born with a little bit of sight. I could see colours, I could see light, I could see shapes. Um, by the time I was seven or eight years old, that had all gone. Um, weirdly, my visual cortex still works. So I still see pictures and like a little video stream going on in my head. But that's all made up of sound and touch and, and sort of smells and whatever else these days around me, sort of spatial awareness rather than anything that's coming in through the eyes. So yeah, it was a real education for me. Uh, meeting you because I hadn't spent my career involved in in sight loss or blindness at all, and then to sort of um, to join at the same time as I never really considered myself to have lost my sight because I kind of don't think I ever had it. Whereas to meet someone who sort of started losing their sight during their life was a real education for me and gave me a really good understanding for the wider role I do. I think I mean it was it was quite a moment for me as well because whilst I mean I've you know as you do when you lose your sight you find community with other people with sight loss I've never you know worked closely and and been friends with someone that um has if you like all of their lives learned the skills and techniques to get on with work you know it was struck me the way that you can listen to a spreadsheet and understand what's going on looked a little bit like magic to me that <laughs> there was some sort of mysterious thing in the background but I guess from your point of view that's that's how you've always done things is it I mean when new technologies came you experienced them through sound first and foremost absolutely when I first joined um, my first employer I remember a very um, I felt very appropriate but some would think quite inappropriate conversation I had with the recruiting manager who was the final interview of four, four, three or four different interview rounds. And um, he said to me, look, um, we want you to come and work with us, but we need to be sure you're ready for this because we've never had someone with your condition come and work for us. And this is not about you. This is about us. We're not very good at this. Um, and I found that to be really enlightening because he talked to me about needing to be resilient. And that he was very honest and saying I was going to face into challenges that, you know, not every other employee had to face into. And I think this was the reality. And it still is in many ways. But this was before, you know, the Disability Discrimination Act, the Equality Act. It was before, it was around about the introduction of access to work, I think, although the process was very limited compared with what it is now. And the technology, of course, you know, most companies in those days were working off mainframes, big massive computers based in some central location that 
sort of dump stuff out onto onto terminals. You know, it didn't it didn't interact. So even if something as simple as getting the voice software to work, it it, it took nearly a year to sort it out. Um, so he was right to do that. But I think I've been very fortunate in other ways in that my career has sort of coincided with technological advancements. Um, you know, it's just like the iPhone, for example. I basically live my life on it now. Um, and so I think I've been very fortunate um, in that way. And I guess the other thing, particularly when I when I came to RNIB, it was quite strange for me to, to sort of, I'd always been in an environment where I was the only person and therefore mm. I had to find ways to deal with it. Um, I remember going to a one global credit institution where you know, I had to learn how to use their credit system because it was completely inaccessible and I had to find workarounds for almost everything. Um, and I guess that's something you do, but it's incredibly tiring yeah. and incredibly stressful. Yeah, I mean, the, I mean, that point there, the sort of the extra energy to get to the intro, introductory level of performance is, is, is quite something. And I think, you know, having resilience in the background and stamina is something that's, that's unfortunately, I don't think, you know, there for everyone necessarily in the same way. And it's not something you should have to have. I mean, mm. this is the point, I guess, that looking back, I think I spent the first six years of my career trying to be like everyone else and came to a conclu conclusion one day when I nearly mucked something up because a piece of paper had got lost at the bottom of my in-tray that I needed to stop being like everyone else and start working like me. And from that day forth, I decided I wasn't going to have another piece of paper on my desk. And, of course, I could do that because, you know, email was becoming a lot more prevalent and sharing documents and all that kind of stuff. So I could do that. And I just had to educate my customers, don't send me paper, send me, send me, uh, send me data, send me emails. Yeah, I mean, this assumption of having to be more resilient, it does place a lot of stress on the individuals, no question about that. So it strikes me in, in, in conversations I've had recently at, at Fight for Sight in looking at how we get uh, more blind people you know, connected to what's going on with the science and also to make sure the science is sensitised to the lives of blind people. We've kind of come up with a view that there are two questions that occur at that point of diagnosis for people themselves or you know often for their children as well which are you know at root can you stop this happening how can i or my child live their lives and i, I wonder in hearing and, and having worked with you david and absolutely seeing you are your own man in the way that you're approaching things how much your upbringing and your, your you know your childhood has has equipped you to be able to to do those things and i do remember the story of the um um, it being the uh, the Christmas season, I remember the story of you saying the way that your parents brought Christmas to life for you. I wonder if you could explore that a bit, because I think yeah. there's a lot in the culture of your family that I think demonstrates how we can, you know, find. You know, I, I agree with you. Resilience shouldn't be expected, but mm. it's a handy tool if you can develop it. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, first of all, my parents were in no way equipped to deal with being told that their child was was blind and would lose all of their sight very quickly. I don't, I don't, you know, unless you're an eye surgeon, I don't think you can be equipped for that. And even if you are, you're still probably not equipped because you know the medical side, but you don't know the life side. You don't know the, the lived mm. experience side. But they certainly were nowhere near equipped and got nowhere near the support. So what they had to fall back on was kind of common sense and logic. Uh, and, and what they were absolutely certain of was they wanted me to live what they would describe as a normal life. 
But they also realise that, you know, in the same way that we need, we, we all talk about nowadays, there needs to be some adaptations. So um, when they taught me to ride a two-wheeler bike in the street, the adaptation was they'd tell me where the cars were parked and I would hopefully miss them, <laughs> um, which I did for the most part until somebody cleverly moved their car and I didn't realise. Um, but it was that kind of like just get on with it type approach that they kind of built into me. And it takes a lot of bravery to do that with your young child, you know, yeah. recognising the risks. But one of the amazing cute things they did around Christmas was they always used to put um, glitter on, on the floor that I could feel, which was the sign that, that Rudolph had been and delivered the presents and everything else. My, I guess their view was that my sisters used to walk into our living room and see all the, the sofas and the chairs decked out in colourful paper, and, and I didn't get that vision, that moment of wow, and they wanted to give me that moment of wow. Um, so that's what they did. But I do think that um, I think the difference with me is that, and, and many other people, is that mine was from effectively from birth, um, and so my parents were dealing with my situation. They were first of all going through, is there a problem? Then they were going through, can the problem be fixed? And then they were very quickly onto, no, it can't. So let's deal with it. You know, I. As someone that effectively considers themselves to have been blind since birth, you know, I am massively behind the work you do at Fight for Sight and that others are doing to try and find ways of preventing this stuff happening because, you know, it's kind of obvious to everybody that that's by far the best route. But as someone born blind, I don't have, as 52 years old now, my life would be terribly strange if I was to get my sight back tomorrow. So it's not something that I even think about, but I am terrifically behind. And, and, and by the way, I know there are people who do want that, and that's and that's absolutely fine. And I and I you know wish them incredibly well with that. But I am massive behind the whole research thing because, you know, if something can be caught at a time when it when it when it can be prevented, then of course it'd be wonderful if it could. I think it's really interesting you say that about you know thinking about work, whether you would want um, describe it as the recovery of sight, but I guess it you know, being blind from birth it isn't yeah. sight loss as such really. No, and and you you from a child everything that you've known in the way that you um, go about life, the way yep. that you experience sport and cinema and entertainment yep. and work and whatever is is geared and. and you know, I, I, you know, we're friends, and I'm not sure if it's a controversial thing to say, but in some ways, it's the same fear as someone losing their sight. In a way, you know, you, everything that you know about the way you live your life would potentially change. So that that is a terrifying. Um, well, we talk about diagnosis to confidence, mm. and you know, and I am absolutely determined amongst you know with partners and friends and colleagues to try and minimise that gap between diagnosis and confidence, and to ensure everybody gets the support they need. I think I'd be on the same journey if I got my sight back mm. because I haven't lived like, like you have lived, for mm. example. You know, I haven't spent my, you know, adult years with sight, living my life with sight. So I think there would be huge difficulties in the same way as in your own life, Keith. Not, none of them insurmountable, but lots of them costing energy and, um, and having to deal with. So, you know, look, it, it, there's so many people out there who are not getting the right level of support and are not getting the right level of, 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 of help uh, to move from diagnosis to confidence. So it's almost a moot point what I'm talking about. But 
I guess what I'm trying to make the point about is that there is a there is a difference, I guess, in how one thinks about these things if you have been brought up in the way that I've been brought up. An important and positive difference, I think, as well. Yeah. I mean, I, 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 you know, we have very different experiences of, you know, it is genuinely is sight loss, you know, for me. And, you know, as you know, in the five, six years we've known each other, my sight's deteriorated significantly. I've yep. got a guide dog, you know, I, I'm having to change, um, you know, all the time. So, I, yeah. I you know, th- there's every chance that throughout my professional career there won't be a settled state yep. for me. It will change. And one of the hardest the things yeah. that I found chatting to you as a mate and a colleague was trying to encourage you um, in the only way I knew to kind of embrace that change. Mm. So, for example, moving from the very last bit of the use of your useful site to read materials to a more speech-based way of operating. And I, I look at that challenge as a third party, and I might as well not be blind at all because it's it looks like such a challenging thing to go through for me, you know? Um and it's funny, isn't it? Everyone always assumes that if you're disabled, you must understand disability. And everyone assumes that if you're visually impaired, you must understand visual impairment. I, I, I don't understand your journey at all, uh, as in I don't have primary experience of it. I can do my best to understand it through talking to people and seeing what happens. But, yeah, trying to, even as a, as a blind person, trying to give you that, that kind of steer was it's difficult. I mean, for me, the, the the great thing about finding community and, and friendship in the way that we have um, is that we have some comparables in our experience. I mean, we're two mm. white blokes in our 50s um, with, with common interests in, in football, although I've obviously got a much uh, more exciting prospect with Tottenham than you might have with Liverpool this season, we shall see. Well, it does have its more ups and downs, yeah. I agree with you. <laughs> yeah, but, you know, ultimately, I, I think that there's... You know, there's something in my mind about the diversity of experience that's that's important yeah. as well. And, and difference for me is is one of the ways that we power innovation. It's one of the ways that we kind of get to understand different perspectives on the world. I'll be really honest, David. I mean, the the and you know this well. That during lockdown, my daughter was diagnosed with um, this eye condition. Yeah. Um, and the way that the RP works in my family, if if someone hasn't got it, it's gone. It doesn't get passed on. But mm. if you have, then you carry it potentially into the next generation. Got and it. That that for me, I don't know more so than my own experience and pushing myself forward to get on with life. Yeah, um, shook me in a way that I genuinely thought if you could take my life and take that away from Lucy, then that would be a good deal for me. You know, um, Lucy, my daughter. Sorry. Now I, I don't know. I, there's there's something interesting as well, perhaps for us to explore about that individual experience you've got for me the as a parent and i know speaking to other parents of yep. children with genetic diseases there's a guilt factor yeah and um i think in in our in our family it tends to hit the disease hits in the 20s so we get to go through our education and then it gets you um i can't imagine well i can imagine how that guilt feeling if your child was younger might start to overwhelm the way that you try and organize their life and yeah and intervene and I don't know, does that, I mean, is you yourself as a father of, you know, two great boys there, I wonder if that's ever on your mind about how different it might have been if you were. Yeah. Um, I think that's why I, that's why I'm such an advocate f- for the work you guys are doing because, look, I'm told that there isn't a chance of that happening in my world and for which I'm incredibly grateful. But I still have in the back of my mind the fact that it might be. 
You know, I still don't really have conclusive reasons as to why I have the condition I have. I, I think I know them, but it's a bit vague. Uh, so, you know, my kids, my sisters get tested for glaucoma every year. And that tells me, the fact that I'm advised to do that, tells me that one day I could find myself on that, on, on in that situation. Um, and yeah, I think, um, I know my parents at times, you know, went through that process and I think it probably can have an impact on on how you kind of deal with the situation and um, it's very, very challenging and that's why it's so, so important that, you know, we do really start to um, to look at this stuff um, but also that we, we take into account the widest possible experiences of sight loss when, yeah. we're, when we're kind of looking at it because it's incredibly complex. Sight loss is a spectrum and within the spectrum are almost an infinite amount of spectrums, right? <laughs> In all sorts of different directions. And I think one of the things I've learned since coming to RNIB and starting to sort of take responsibility for running a number of the services we run is emotional and peer support is so vital um, at all levels, you know, all levels of relationship. It's it's in, it's incredible to me how impactful that can be, and yet probably half the people receiving a permanent diagnosis of sight loss won't get anything. And, and I'm absolutely yeah. determined to change that because that can't be right. I mean, I think here... The um, those two questions I spoke about before: can you stop this happening, and mm. and how do I live my life? Are, are are genuine, authentic questions that occur for people with diagnosis, and I think yeah. it is utterly inescapable that whatever it is that people need at that moment of diagnosis and the process that follows that as they adjust with their identity and economically and socially and in the commu- in the community they're in, that the importance of charities such as ours with a different focus but with a common cause to make sure that the life of blind and visually impaired people is, you know, is, 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 is improved from where it is and that the status mm. of um, slowing these conditions down and making sure that people with these conditions can find the liberty and autonomy and, you know, the full and rich lives that are entirely yeah. possible, I think is... Equity. Is, is, yeah, absolutely, absolutely. I mean, one of the things that always struck me in conversations we've had in the past, and um, I know you'll enjoy me dragging up famous Dave Clark phrases, but... The point you always made about accessibility and actually accessibility is there everywhere for everyone. It's only a tweak and a nuance of this. So road markings are a form of accessibility. Absolutely. I wrote an article, which I haven't been brave enough uh, uh, to publish yet because I, I live in fear of being clattered for it. But <laughs> it tells two stories. Not story- by me. <laughs> no, but it tells, it tells two stories of the same journey and one is, and, and neither of them, are people with sight loss or with a disability. But one journey goes really well and one journey goes really badly. And the one that goes really badly is missing basic things like mm. road markings, traffic lights, roundabouts, holes dug in the middle of roads, walls put up, trains stopping three foot from the platform edge, You know, no screens working in the office, no recognition on the cameras. That, like The whole thing's broken, right? The whole system's broken. Mm. And at the, end of the, at the end of the article, I kind of run into this thing about this isn't a story about disability, this is a story about accessibility. And, and I truly believe that. The world is built in a way that suits the, the majority of people who would consider themselves to be um, able-bodied or whatever the correct phrase is these days. 
and in actual fact, it, it, it doesn't need to be that way. Um, and as you've seen from the various things that have happened across the modern tube network and various other things and with iOS and various smartphones and all that, you know, sm- it, it can work if people just put a bit of thought into it. So, no, for me, accessibility is not a dis- is not about disability. Accessibility is about enab- enabling everyone to live their life. The thing that's always struck me about the potential of the modern world to be widely accessible to all sorts of diverse experiences and situations for people, as you say, is it only takes the bus driver to turn the sound off on the stops yeah. because he doesn't like the noise in the background or the... Uh, um, it's happened to me yesterday on my way to go and watch the World Cup final and they just shut a couple of tube stations and didn't do an announcement. Yeah. And uh, I, you find I, yourself whisking I, through I somewhere. ended up in Upminster, which I wouldn't wish on uh, yeah. anyone, no disrespect to Upminster. A big um, shout out to the pubs of Upminster. Well, yeah. Just in case they're going to sue Keith. I, I, did, your... I, I did make a small investment in the pubs of Upminster yesterday <laughs> and, uh, and a very enjoyable time was had by all. Um, one of the things that, um, you know, as I mentioned at the start, Dave, the 2012 Olympics, which we know for so many visually impaired people that were participating there, was was a massive um, boost. And, um, you know, I know the day that I met you, realising um, that not only were we two new blind guys in a new team, I also had the captain of the England football team in, <laughs> in the mix there. So a lot for me to fight for. And you've always been very generous with um, stories of that. Apologies for the noise on there. That's the guide dog uh, moving herself around and having a shake. I wonder if you could say a bit about what that meant to you in your in your life. Quite incredible to have that career alongside your banking career as well. But is that something that powered you on? Yeah, I mean, it's one of those um, sort of serendipitous things, really, where you know I was born into a family that were passionate about football. I I wanted to play football through some brilliant teachers who were quite innovative and made a ball that made a sound in it at school. I was able to play football. Uh, but it was never. I could never play for my club or my county or never mind my country. That wasn't possible. And then in 1995, the world authorities got, came up with a set of rules where you could play international football. Um, and there was a, you know, a selection process. And because of all that sort of work I'd done previously, sort of honing the skills, I was in a position to take advantage of that opportunity. Mm. And then went on to play for 17 years, 144 games. And of course, it ended up, you know, I nearly retired after 2008. In fact, my performance director did retire me on TV. He said, uh, yeah, of course, Dave Clark won't be coming back anymore. I'm like, hey, hang on. Uh, <laughs> you've heard of London. <laughs> so, but there were a couple of moments in London that were just incredible, um, probably because lots of other people turned them down. I got asked to receive the torch as it came in from the orbit wow. on a zip wire um, from Joe Townsend and then I got the opportunity to run across the stadium in front of 80,000 people and <laughs> millions around the world and handed it to um, a lady who's no longer with us unfortunately Margaret Morn, who was our first ever gold medal winner in 1960 uh, and she's a wheelchair user and um, you know she she rocked up to the cauldron and set light to it and I just remember being there that night and the incredible warmth coming out of this cauldron and thinking wow this is it you know yeah. it's landed and then, of course, scoring my first goal against Spain, four and a half thousand people in the stadium, millions around the country watching. And, of course, I embarrassed myself because I scored the equaliser, then ran away, hugged the first person I could come across, and it was the ref. Uh, which, there's video footage out there on YouTube. It's Thanks absolutely, for the favours. <laughs> absolutely hilarious. That, uh, it got yeah. picked up by the last leg and everything. I've never lived it down, but it, um, but it was quite funny. But then <clears throat> it's quite interesting that something I'm determined to work on in the future is that... And I have to be really careful how I phrase this because I'm not 
just to be really clear, I'm not, I'm not blaming anyone for this at all, but there is just a feeling, or there was a feeling post-London, it was such a positive thing mm. on, on the field of play. But I think a lot of the a lot of the general public were absolutely bought into disabled sport, which was brilliant, to Paralympic sport, which was awesome, and saw saw it as elite sport, didn't see it as like sympathy or empathy yeah. or, you know, it, it was acceptance that this is elite sport. But I think a, a lot of disabled people also felt that it put incredible pressure on them. And and, and I always, I, I, I hear that and I understand it and I think it's probably right, you know, lots of kind of, you know, people saying, well, why can't you do that? And I'm thinking to myself, no one turns up outside Usain Bolt's neighbour's house and says, <laughs> why can't you run 100 metres in 9.7 seconds, you lazy thing? And and so I, I really, I don't know quite how to sort of handle it, but I, I think overall 2012 was such an incredibly positive experience. I think the time has now come for that to be expressed in wider life um i very famously said which i sort of regretted but i think i don't regret it actually because it's the honest truth i said on a on a podcast with the telegraph i said what's the point in winning all the medals if you can't get the train to work and i and i kind of meant it society's got it's not just good enough to accept sport as being the place where disabled people can excel it has to be life and and people shouldn't have to feel less than because they don't do it. There's all sorts of valuable, valuable people, you know, just just amazing, amazing people, disabled people who who do lots of different things and should be given the opportunity to do lots of different things. And this is about equity, you know. Um, but it is a strange thing, isn't it, that you kind of reflect on that and you go, well, no one turns up at, you know, all these different places having a go at other people. And I, I've always kind of... It's my slight sort of guilt in the background. Is am I almost in some ways making it harder for people? And that, of course, isn't the intention. And I do hope that the gold dust that Paralympians create year after year after year when they participate and show the amazing performances does sprinkle on the whole of society and gets the whole of society to change its attitude. Well, in, in elite sport, I mean, you've, you've, you've really you've articulated really eloquently there. But to my mind, elite sport can drive grassroots involvement and can and, yeah. and, sh- and, and demonstrate what's possible. But obviously for um, people with disabilities in particular with visual impairment, there are some barriers to par- participation there yeah. that are in place. So whilst the will might be there and the impetus, there's yeah. there's more to go on perhaps than it would be for Usain's Bolt, Bolt's neighbour to take a... Yeah. Uh, not that I know who he is. He may well be visual no, impaired No, no, but himself, you're right. But, you know, it, you're it's, so right. It's, it's what we do. And I wondered if you wanted to say a bit about... The RNIB's work in relation to the games in Birmingham next year as yeah. being part really of that movement that you've 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 um, yeah. So there's two elements to it. The first element is being the major sponsor for the Ibsen World Games, which is going to see thousands of athletes come to Birmingham to take part in visually impaired elite sport, which is brilliant. And RNIB is incredibly proud to be that lead sponsor. The second uh, thing is see sport differently, where you know through through research and through working with the uh, sight loss community and, uh, and a number of different stakeholders, we've been able to really hone in on the issues at play here. Um, and strangely, it's not actually the opportunity, um, although there are, of course, issues with ensuring a positive reaction when, when blind and participated people go to do sport or activity or recreation or movement. 
but it's almost how to get to the opportunity and how do you how do you know you want to do something when you don't know you want to do it and you don't know it exists that's kind of the bigger issue so how do you bring stuff to people how do you give it because at the end of the day it's about choice right um, but what i do know is that a blind and partially sighted person is twice as likely not to be doing the nhs minimum of of, of movement in a week now you know that sits out there very starkly because of all the different aspects that come with that and some of the challenges that that that, that, that can create. Um, so what what we're hoping is, you know, our joint work with Sport England and, and, and British Blind Sport will we'll bring these opportunities to people and give people choice and, and enable them, you know, to take part. And the initial, the initial results are really, really positive um, and also accessible workouts and things like that, you know, um, allowing people to do in their own home, allowing people to be part of a community. Um, I say allowing, it's a stupid word really. Creating the opportunity is mm. it would be a better way of doing it. And, and not blaming people. You know, mm. it, it, a lot of people, um, no one should feel uh, pressured or blamed. It's just providing the same opportunities as everyone else has, removing the barriers and see where we get to, you know. Um, yeah, I, I'm very, very... I'm very, very excited about it. Well, and and you know, I, I think the the these two questions that I've been talking about here: the can you stop this happening, and how do I live my life? I think are that they're intimately connected in the everyday and do relate to um, how people form an identity and build their confidence, how they mm. figure out what's happening to them. You know, that, that there's visually impaired or otherwise, everybody should be trying to look after their their eye health mm-hmm. and equally broadly we should all be making the effort to look after our you know our wider health and, yeah. and our physical activity and you know the point that you make about equity and that i think is you know is critical and um hopefully from the conversation we've had today you know we you and i in the work that we do are starting to embody that point really that there's a lot to be hopeful for yeah i think i think there are in many ways in the support and diagnostic pathway for people with visual impairment and also from the progress that I'm certainly seeing in the potential of the science, there are many small steps on a on a very big journey that we can take mm. as a community. Um, I think, you know, I'm really mindful in, in talking this through with you, David, as well, that we're both of us people who look to the potential of what we can get done in our careers neither of us started in the charity sector no. we? we we found our way to it through yeah. uh yeah through circuitous means but i just wondered just as we close whether and we uh you know we, we, we're knocking on christmas now whether what your sort of hopes are for the next year um professionally and you know in relation to the work for blind and visually impaired people well i mean professionally you know i made a positive decision to come and work in the sight loss sector there's something within me that will always ask the question, well, why why is such important stuff being left to the charity sector to sort yeah. out? But while other people who are far better versed in it than I am start carry on solving that problem, um, I'm going to carry on working my damnedest to make sure that the support mechanisms are there for those who do receive a diagnosis that people can live the life of their choosing and live that equitably um, and not be forced into a life that other people want them to live, that they can, that people can move through to confidence and be the best version of themselves, you know, with the right support. Um, 
And then also, you know, there are also around six to 700,000 people who have a sort of temporary interaction with sight loss every year as well, mm. who could be incredible advocates for what we're trying to do here, you know. And I think we've spent very little time engaging those people. I'm talking about people who have, who, who have cataracts that perhaps get, get dealt with or, you know. I think there's a huge opportunity to really create a, a powerful force of hundreds of thousands and eventually millions of people who get the, the fact that one in five people at some point during their life are going to have a sight loss diagnosis yeah. and take it more seriously and, 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 and help us with, with what we're trying to do. You know, I, I can't tell you how hard I feel that, I feel that commitment um, because the bit that I can really help with and the bit that I can really change through um, the work that myself, my colleagues and, and brilliant people across the sector are doing is I can't stop the diagnosis and I hope others can, but mm. I can't. What I can do is ensure equitable living after the diagnosis and I'm absolutely determined to do that. Dave Clark, thank you so much for your time today. I, uh, as ever, am uh, um, you know, inspired in the conversations that we that we have together. I think there's a hell of a lot for us to do, so we must keep going into the new year. And I think the partnerships that are forming in the sector, as you say, and certainly the commitment of Fight for Sight alongside RNIB to to make sure there's progress for blind and visually impaired people and to tackle eye health is, uh, is, is, is in our DNA. So I'm looking forward to a lot more work together in the years to come. Thank you for your time, David. Real pleasure. Thanks a lot.